Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hartley. This podcast exists to inspire and encourage your heart-centered leadership. Each week, I share interviews with some of the greatest heart-centered leaders in the world. And I hope that our time spent together helps you leave a heart print where those around you are left better than yesterday. Please visit abty.co.uk if you would like us in your corner. These interview sessions are brought to you by Matt Media Online Marketing, an independent agency who specialise in content marketing, helping business owners get their message seen by the right audience. If you want to get your business seen through the power of social media, head to mattmedia.online. On episode 238, I welcome Busy Gold to the show. Busy is regarded as one of the top personal development and wellness experts in the world. She is the founder of The Break Method, a logic-based, process-oriented approach to emotional rewiring that serves as a sustainable alternative to traditional talk therapy. I think this conversation is going to encourage you to keep challenging the narrative, the narrative of your mind, your heart, of education and of society. It's a great conversation. It's with Busy Gold on episode 238. Busy, welcome to the Always Best in Yesterday podcast. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me. So good to see you. I um, A couple of years ago, I came across a really incredibly wise woman. Um, she came up on my Instagram reels just speaking so much truth and wisdom. You know, I, I've, I've got ears now and I could hear her message of wisdom loud and clear. Uh, and having a podcast, I was like, I need to have a conversation with this lady on the podcast. And I, and I Googled her name and, and sadly she passed in 2014. And, and you'll know that lady to be Dolores Cannon. Mm-hmm. And I hear, I have it on good authority that you are her most famous student. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. That's something that was told to me by somebody who prophesied over me when I was 19. So if you want me to kind of untangle, it's kind of, it's a, it's a good little narrative that I think brings together so many pieces of who I am as a leader and what brought me here. So I'm happy to dive into that because it is a fun story. So first and foremost, Dolores is one of the most amazing women I've ever met. Mm. She is if anyone's ever watched her on video, she's very kind of blunt and matter of fact and has a lot of deadpan humor. I think if you look back at what she would have been brought up in, in her day and age, she was such a radical inter, uh, innovator just because in her time, especially she was um, raised up in Arkansas, which is where I had to go train with her there it was like the good old boys club so for her to even be a hypnotherapist back in that time was challenging enough because she was breaking a lot of gender norms and then her actually moving from being raised christian out of that to kind of exploring some of these concepts that are much more metaphysical and broad in nature she just was such a barrier breaker and she very much exemplified that in how she was as a teacher so learning from her was amazing When I was 19, I was living in Colorado. I went to University of Colorado and I was very much focused on my professional ski career. That was what I'd been focused on since I was 13. And it just, you know, anyone that's ever been a competitive athlete, if you're very much focused on that, there's not a lot of space in your life for anything else. So I hadn't even considered doing anything else. That's how focused I was. So by the time I had injured myself during my freshman year. I had torn both my ACLs. Mm. I found myself in a full-blown identity crisis because everything I had been focused on for so many years was now off the table. And I was in deep regret and remorse over all the things that I had said no to and not prioritized in my life. So picture young, busy gold walking the lonely streets of Boulder, Colorado on Pearl Street, where there's a lot of like street performers and just a lot of wild stuff happening on Pearl Street. And I was just kind of identity crisis, moping along the street, not knowing what to do with myself. And I found myself one day being chased, what felt like being chased. I'm sure at the time she probably was just trying to, I was a fast walker. I'm from New York city. She was probably just trying to keep up with me, but it felt like I was chased by this woman who described her name was Elizabeth. And she was a older woman, gray hair, 
And she was like, I have a message for you. I have a message for you. And at this time, I was not open to anything at all, completely shut down. I We were talking about this before we hit record. I was raised uh, Jewish in New York City and very much secular, in many ways, was told repeatedly that God wasn't real, even though that was in deep conflict with everything I naturally knew from a young age. So I it actually was one of the ways that made me not trust my parents because there it just immediately presented this conflict. How could I know something so deeply to my core that you're telling me isn't true? And because of that, I was like, well, now I can't trust you people. So yeah. I knew God was real, but I also had been kind of raised with all this very shame-focused messaging on taking a step out of secularism. So there was this idea growing up that believing in Jesus was like believing in Santa Claus. And it was like that silly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, plot twist for everybody. I'm definitely a believer in Jesus. So I'm proudly believing in Santa Claus as a 38 year old woman. <laughs> I've overcome that. And at this time, I had a deep knowing that God was real and never questioned that, but virtually anything else was off limits. Any sort of asking questions or exploring was just an immediate no for me. And that very much is in line with the kind of competitive sports mentality, which was very like rigid and masculine and not wanting to ask a lot of questions. So when this woman came over to me and was like, I have a message for you, I have a message for you. I'm like, like what, what message? What could you possibly say to me? <laughs> and she was like, just wanted to tell you that just saw this flash as you were walking by that you are going to become the most famous student of Dolores Cannons and that your whole you're going to take her work further than she's ever taken it before and I was like what who is this Dolores Cannon and she's like oh well there's a bookstore right there you can go read a bunch of her books and she pointed to a bookstore if anyone's ever been to Boulder Colorado called Lighthouse and I go into Lighthouse and it's my first experience ever of like hippie new age anything. And I just remember the smell of the incense and all the tapestries. And I, I felt like I got transported to this other world where I was like, oh, it like people really do ask questions. There's this whole other sector of life that I'd never considered. And I grabbed a bunch of the books and I started kind of reading through them. And for what it's worth, I've never historically been a reader. I've never been somebody that's pumped up to bring a book home. And I remember looking at these books and being dismayed that they were thousands of pages and being like, oh, like what? And then I kind of left with these four books in my backpack and almost had this feeling like, did I just get marketed to? Is this Dolores's street team? Like, What was this whole thing? Start reading the books. And it's the first time in my life that I started to read and I couldn't stop. So I was like up way into the night reading, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages and I just knew there's something here and I can feel it in my body. And it's the first time I'd ever felt excited about anything. And I was like, I have to be one of Dolores's students, right? And I was like, she said, I'm going to be her one of her most famous ones. So like, let's go. So I look it up and she doesn't teach anyone how to do her method yet. And I was like, what? There's got it. I'm going to get on the mailing list. So I get on the mailing list and I'm like checking my email, checking my email. Cause I'm like, if this lady prophesied correctly, like this is going to happen any day now. And I probably waited a few months before it actually happened, but she said, you know, they're doing their first training in Fayetteville, Arkansas, felt the application, did it and got accepted. There's a whole bunch more to that story, but um, we can fill that in later. I know we don't have a ton of time, but when I eventually went to Fayetteville to go learn from her, it really was the beginning of where I think I've eventually landed in the mental health field because it brought up this deeper conversation around the power of the subconscious and how the brain can know things and, and act upon the things that it knows without you being consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that spark for me at that ripe age of 19 did bring me exactly to where I am today because it it only brought forth more questions and a desire for me to understand how everything connects together and I do feel like some of my teaching from Dolores helped set that spark and while I didn't go on really to practice QHHT for all that long I did practice it for two and a half years I eventually kind of started to develop something else entirely which makes sense again why the prophecy was you're going to take her work in a direction she never expected so, because I do think that there are elements of that foundation that was set, but ultimately I have gone in a very different direction because 
I've eventually landed in a bunch of research and teaching that kind of debunks some of the thinking around past lives. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I've taught before on this where I do believe that Dolores, even toward the end of her life, was starting to get some of these pieces where she was like, oh, wait, because ultimately her style was that she wanted to be both scientist and somebody that was focused on cataloging lost history. And she was very focused on not printing something unless it was confirmed through multiple sources that were unrelated, which I always really appreciated about her work. I do think that as she got toward the later years, she started to see that there there might actually be something else going on that's coming from the DNA level that mm. is not exactly how she was looking at it. And this is where it's important for us to remember that this is a multidimensional world and there's so many different facets to truth that if we're only willing to look at one or two of those facets and say like, this is the truth, then we're really missing so much more of the picture. Mm. And I do love that she was, I think, a leader in that and trying to really move the needle forward. But ultimately, I think a lot of people past her death have continued to push that and tried to make even more sense of it in that multifaceted way. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. I um I'm preparing to interview Richard Rudd tomorrow. Richard is the author of a book called Gene Keys, um, and it, and one mm -hmm. of the things that he kind of talks about that in the in the gene in the DNA code is that almost ninety percent of it is labelled as junk DNA. Junk. And I guess mm -hmm. yeah, I just wonder what your perspective on what that kind of junk might be. So yeah, I have a teaching on my busygold.com website called the biomechanics of deliverance that dives into this pretty extensively. It's about 25 hours worth of teaching. <laughs> when we look at past lives or like what many of us might describe as past lives, it's actually information that's coming. So DNA is a bioinformation source. And we already know that we're carrying all of the information of genetic lines before us. So what I've found is that there are people that are, it's easier for them to access and pull data, if you will, from different parts of that hard drive. So if we look at DNA, like a hard drive that's storing lots of information through all space time that somehow relate back to what's in your body their brains are able to source that data much more readily than somebody else's brain or body. That doesn't to me mean that they themselves were somebody else. I do believe that all soul spirits are actually distinct and separate. And it took me many years to get there. And I've worked with so many clients through some of this that eventually you start to bump into this. And I don't think you can deny it. If you go into something like this with that mind of a scientist, you can't hide from the data that you keep being confronted with. And I, I felt that as I moved through this work for so many years, eventually I became confronted so many times with this that I eventually had to land on people that experience past lives are actually able to access specific parts of their bio information to recall those as if it was self when really they're just a vessel that's able to articulate that information where somebody else might not be able to access it, right? Their access might be denied when they try to go into those parts of the information stored on their DNA. I think this is also where if you look at it from a biblical perspective, it's always mentioned in the Old Testament that somebody's choice point or their iniquity that they bestow upon their bloodline is going to impact three to four generations after them. Okay. When epigenetics really started to rise up and people started to study genes more extensively and we were able to map them and understand the sequences, we do find that a behavior or a choice point does affect three to four generations behind. And whenever it's actually run, I think it's interesting that it says three to four rather than a hard number, because it is actually an average between three to four. So I think when we look at genes, genes are going to tell us a whole lot about who we are. And I think not just who we are in our physicality, but I think genes are going to, I hope that they become studied much more as a spiritual point of understanding because I think much more of our spiritual life is coming also from our DNA than we're willing to look at right now and I think we're starting to see this through the study of epigenetics but I, I strongly believe that if 
if the world that we lived in truly wanted to solve more problems and wanted to fundamentally help humanity rather than harm it, there would have been more research dollars put into things like this. And I think it's systematically blocked at most levels of research. And I've done some teaching on this as well. And I've had some guests on my podcast that have talked about how this gatekeeping really impacts the yeah. sciences because it's very much a gatekeeping sort of yeah. stronghold I'm, in our world. I'm laughing because um, last year I had the grandfather of epigenetics on the podcast, Bruce Lipton. <laughs> yes, and he's that, awesome. Uh, yeah, it, that was it, it, as a podcast host, it was a challenge for me to interview him because he went off on one <laughs> on some of the things that are kind of going on in, you know, just the idea that the, um, you know, some of these uh, big pharma, big, you know, they are they are systems not actually designed for our benefit, um, shall we say, Absolutely to our highest true. good. Yeah, mm -hmm. so um, it just made me laugh just thinking about that. And, and I guess, you know, for, for you, you know, bestowed with this wisdom, you know, at the age of 19, has it been like a direct path to where you're at or has there been multiple kind of expressions of busy coming to the world? Like, how did you carve your path? And, and, and I, we talk about something here at Always Better yesterday called heart work. It's the gifts, the skills, the talents that we have um, that we use in the service of other people. That I think when we bring that bit of heart to the world, it facilitates transformation, it facilitates healing, it creates new possibilities. Has that been a straight path for you? I don't think anything in my life has been a straight path. <laughs> One thing that's been consistent is that my gifting and how my gifting works has always been there. And I think this is why for people that do operate in kind of like biblical foundations or Christian spaces, I do think it's very appropriate that it's told that you know somebody by their fruits, not their gifts. So you know somebody is doing the work by who they are externally, like how they show up in the world, how kind are they, how patient are they, not just their gifting, because I was always incredibly gifted, even when I was a total jerk. So I think when I look at the straight line for me, my gifting has been a relatively straight line. I don't know that my, I think my ability to access and use my gifts appropriately has definitely expanded, but my gifting has been, I would say the same since I was a very little kid. I've been teaching things that far exceed my personal knowledge base since I was a little kid. My parents used to jokingly refer to me as the Oracle because I could answer any question, even if I had never learned it. And I would say even to this point in my life, I've been really led to practice something that I call intentional ignorance, which is I won't read or study anything in an area where I know my gifting is utilized because then I know with 100% certainty that it's coming from me and it's not borrowed or stolen from somebody else. And frankly, I wish more people in the world would practice this because I think it would help bring original thought to the forefront much more frequently often what happens if somebody's coming through a space like academia, you're taught different structures and different systems, and then you're taught to only think within those structures or systems. So often what comes out of it, it, it could be that you do have a new idea in air quotes or something that is really innovative, but you're actually constraining the innovation based on the systems or structures that you've been taught. So I think even for a lot of really brilliant people that could have brought something even more profound into the world, it's almost like it squeezes it into this box so it doesn't quite have the effect that it could if that person was really able to just kind of let their creative genius and innovation Express, run wild. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So yeah. I'm grateful that that's something that I was led to just feel convicted about early in my career, even when people were like, well, isn't that just your ego? And I'm like, it's not, it's actually for me, it's not about, I think my thing is better than somebody else's. It's actually for me out of, out of concern for never wanting to accidentally steal somebody else's work, right? That's just that, that would, I feel like to me, that would feel so wrong. And I've had it done to me so many times. I would just never accidentally want to put myself in that position. But it's also your fullest expression, isn't it? You know, I, I interviewed uh, Neil Donald Walsh a couple of weeks ago, who wrote Conversations with God. And one of the things he says is that we are to come here to become our fullest potential, to have a personal evolution. And mm -hmm. that's it, isn't it? Having the courage and the bravery to share of whatever it is I am here in this moment called to bring. I have an eight-year-old daughter. And she is she is full of spirit. You know, she is full of uh, life. And um, I just have to survive 
raising her i think as a, as a parent <laughs> she's going to be a world changer and and it's, it's i recognize what you're saying it's just for me i see my responsibility as a parent is to try and nurture her nature in 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 us there are aspects of her character that are so unique and different to her brother that i think okay that my my overarching responsibility as a parent is to try and give her opportunities to bring of the uh, the fullest of herself absolutely true and with break method we do have a very specific lens that we look at kind of child pattern emerging so when you're talking about how right son and daughter are very different this is going to be the case in virtually all families i have four kids none of my kids are like the other and I think when we look at the nature versus nurture conversation, it's what's always been so frustrating to me is that you can't separate them. There, There's a domino effect happening. And even if we start to bring genetics into the conversation, there's a very strong cycle that comes from kind of the foundation of what sort of code is in the genetics. And then that code is then in the child who's in the environment. So it would be all the repetitive, adversely perceived stimuli that the kid's experiencing. That's going to impact the way they're labeling reality and perceiving the things around them. And then nature comes back and again, right? Because the nurture would be the environment. The genetics would be the nature. So we've got kind of nature. And then on top of that, nurture. And then we've got another sandwich layer, so to speak, right? We put some cheese on top of that, which is another nature element. But to me, this is more of a spirit nature, who we actually always were, who God made us to be, who we are in the spirit is then faced with expressing themselves in said environment. So I believe how the child chooses to handle their environmental inputs is very much still a factor of nature, which is why you can have two kids that are raised in the same exact environment. They experience the same things. And ultimately their outputs are very distinct and different when, and maybe even those two kids that do have the different expressions, they might also have the same genetics, right? So how do you account for that? That's where I think you have to account for who their spirit infused self is that is unlike anybody else that's truly unique. So what often I think parents do that I I think is harmful is they try to cater too much to how the spirit prefers to do things. And what we focus on a lot in break is that a preference becomes a pattern if you as a parent don't help them learn how to oppose their preference and learn how to do it a variety of different ways. So in break method, we look at as a parent, how you're setting the environment, how what ways your child experiences love, because every child is going to receive love in a different way. So examples of this would be my daughter, Sarai, who's 13. She experiences love by me being on time for things, for me having her backpack organized. She has cerebral palsy, so there are physical things that she can't do for herself. So me doing those things without her having to ask me is how she experiences love. To her, like lately now that she's 13, now every once in a while she'll want to come in for a hug. But in general, she's not really been a very snuggly type of gal. Now, by contrast, my son Zev, who's 10, only receives love as words of affirmation and physical touch. Like everything else doesn't matter. I could have his whole life a mess and he would care not. He just wants snuggle time. Yeah. Um, He wants me to make sure I go to his room at night and be like, I love you so much. Sarai couldn't care. So we have to kind of reverse engineer. How do they, how, what is their language of receiving that? And then how do we ensure that we're keeping their environment stable? Mm-hmm. Stable environment is going to be a factor of consistency. So a lot of parents might be very emotionally mature, right? They've done a lot of the work, so to speak. But what I find is that their environments can be too free for all and they're too spontaneous. And the child ends up then outputting a control to be safe response because they don't understand how to operate in their world. So this is where I can see parents that like try too much to cater to the individual. Everything starts to fall apart because if you're catering to the individual, you start to lose sight of how to create that structure for the family as a whole. And then everyone feels unstable. So I feel like, again, going with that like sandwich layering effect, 
there have to be certain things that are consistent and stable in the family as a whole, regardless of how the child prefers it. And then you pay attention to how you're parenting each child in that set environment that they do understand that they can learn the rules of. And then you help them learn how to be flexible and adaptable to learn how to do things different ways within that structure. So I don't, I don't know if I explained that in a way that makes yeah, sense, no. but no, I, appreciate I think that. I, I... when it comes to the parents that are, you know, usually trying to do a little bit more of this work, I can see them pendulum swing way too far to the other side. And that's a whole, that requires cleanup too. Yeah, I interviewed a lady called Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, and, and she described it nicely, which is like um, at both ends of the spectrum, it's almost like abuse. You know, like, totally. You know, if you're, you're too harsh on them, it's abuse. And if you're giving them too much chocolate every day, it's, you know, it's abuse. And somewhere in the middle is a bit where there's, you know, is, I guess, helping them through that process of, of maturation. I want to make space for the break method. I really want to kind of package it so that you can introduce it properly. Um, okay. But I just want to pick up on what you just said around um the family unit and i think there's a lot of like unseen forces and pressures on the family unit whether that's about drawing the parents out of the family home whether that is about the stresses and pressures of life whether that is about social media finances um peers and things like youtube and tiktok and the shit it is a tough time uh for the nuclear family unit you're a beautiful family of four um you know what? What what's some of your kind of eyes open yeah, takes on some of these unseen forces? I have a tendency to look at that from a very macro level perspective, and I don't think that I'm able to remove the spiritual insight from it because it it does feel very much like a spiritual battle. Mm -hmm. Socially, over time, let's say, especially from you know '80s to to present, but I would say certainly there's evidence that this kind of begun in the 60s with kind of the summer of love, right? Where before that, there was very much a, a strong family foundation. One of the things that people often don't want to think about or talk about that I can't help but look at is actually in the 40s and 50s, Black Americans were predominantly married. They had actually, they were all like higher end of the middle class they were actually the most conservative group in the United States, and they were, in general, the most religious. So they mostly identified as Christian. Mm -hmm. And then we see this Summer of Love movement come in in the 60s. And from the 60s to the 70s, there's definitely this power struggle within those communities that there's something that's clearly happening from the outside that's trying to manipulate their world to get them to willingly walk away from families. Yeah. We also then see in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, the crack, the crack epidemic that were certainly used to try to, again, incentivize people out of the homes. So then we see that whole group just completely everything that they had worked hard to build and had succeeded in building starts to fall apart. I think that same architecture, right, the, the same thing that happened to Black Americans, that same architecture is now happening to the nuclear family as a whole, right? So it's how can we, through social priming and different sorts of cultural inputs, can we get people to start to feel that there's somehow error in the either conservative values or the nuclear family as a whole and get them to willingly turn their backs on it? So there's definitely that play, too. Which, if we look at it from like a feminism perspective, one of the ways to do that is to actually disrupt masculine feminine polarity in a relationship, which I believe is really important to get women to be like, yeah, why do I need this? And to willingly step into a more masculine presentation, which inherently is going to create conflict in a relationship because polarity starts to fall apart. And then people don't know who's who in the roles, the sex life starts to fall apart because all of those energies are very important. You know, whether... I also, my background is also in acupuncture and TCM, looking at masculine feminine energy, regardless of how you identify gender wise, there are different expressions of energy that need to be a certain way and a certain blend for a relationship to thrive. When we start to see those get off kilter or both people are operating their masculine, a relationship virtually is impossible. That's where we'll start to see a lot of toxicity kick up because both people are trying to control in the relationship and that's that's never going to work. So I do think that some of that social priming has gotten in there and it's made in general 
women more masculine and in general it's made men more feminine which I don't think is accidental I think that's very much by design because as soon as you get people out of their you know god-given nature people start to lose their power they go into confusion relationships stop being a match anymore and then all that's left is like well I guess I'm just gonna have great friends or I guess I'm just gonna be poly and sleep with lots of people because I can't connect with anybody anymore when really I think foundationally your identity as a soul spirit has been attacked. And one thing that I've studied a lot in my work and I've taught a bunch of lectures on this is in general, I'll use myself as you know a female example. My protective response to trauma is to become more and more and more masculine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we kind of move. I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically, it's a, it's like the gender spectrum that shows where androgyny happens, where it's kind of like you're somewhere in the middle. A woman starts to become more masculine as a way to protect themselves. Oftentimes a man becomes more feminine as a way to protect themselves. So I think when we're looking at this idea of let's all kind of be somewhere in the middle or like, what is gender? We shouldn't be on this side or that side. I believe that people are intended to be dynamic and multifaceted, but I do also see evidence that when somebody is in their most healed state, they do fully embody whatever those genetics are for themselves. Because the more we lean into the other, it's just the more scared we are, the more traumatized we are, the more healing we have to do. So I know I've certainly seen this in my life where as I've become more healed and more emotionally intelligent, I've become significantly more feminine because now it's safe. Yeah. So I think that is totally under attack as well, because they're now like manipulating people's minds to think, if you look on Google, and I taught a whole lecture on this, the happiest people in the world are androgynous. I can tell you right now that is absolutely unfounded. That's not true. Because the more people kind of navigate to that midpoint, the more they're just essentially living in their trauma response as an identity. Yeah, for sure. It's denial, isn't it? It's denial, it's confusion, Mm -hmm. it's doubt, it's distraction. And I, and I think, isn't it such a beautiful thing when we give of ourselves, of our natural selves? You know, it's that harmonious exchange. Like you say, when we have that exchange of polarity, the unity of that polarity, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's I, someone once described, I think John Martini says that love is the synthesis of thesis and antithesis, <laughs> which was just some long words to say. Love is the synthesis of polarity. The closer Absolutely. we get to the middle, the more out of harmony we are, and the the more the more polar we are. It's actually not conflict. It's actually knowing. It's balance. Mm-hmm. It's balance, right? It's knowing this is what I uniquely bring, and this is what you uniquely bring. You are so valued for bringing that, and you are so valued for bringing that. So he gets respect, and she gets uh, appreciation and and adoration, and and it, and it's a mutually wonderful place to be right role differentiation is critically important one visual that i've taught people in some of my leadership training is if you were to imagine that you are a cog in a clock if anyone ever opened up kind of the clock face you see all those little cogs in the back we each have our own cog and if we try to just be like somebody else's cog this clock is not going to move we all our job in this life is to figure out exactly what size ours is how far apart the teeth are, because ultimately as a human collective, we all thrive when everyone knows exactly who they are and where they fit in, because then the clock can actually tick. But I feel like so much of our world makes us programmatically try to be like other people's cogs that everything starts to fall apart. The biggest one, the shiniest one, the most valuable one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah, it's just like a modern day serpent, isn't it? Saying, hey, come Mm -hmm. and get something outside of yourself. Totally. You you are lack you are in a state of lack. You do not have all that you need. And that marriage that you're part of, well, it's about your happiness, not actually your service to each other. So you just hit something that I think is so important. And I was just having this conversation with my husband. I would say the most the people that report the most dissatisfaction with life are focused on happiness, pleasure, and fairness. If everything in your life is trying to seek after happiness, pleasure, or fairness, and even to some extent, this is a, I think even seeking after purpose is also a losing battle, which I can kind of dig into in a second. All of those things in the world that we live in, that's built to fail. 
where I believe people thrive the most, as you said, is to understand fundamentally who you are, to have a solid identity and to be of service to others. Other than those two things, life starts to fall apart and feel like crap very quickly. And I think for many people that tend to be a little bit more self-centered in their approach that are seeking for things to be fair for them or to be pleasurable for them, their biggest piece of pattern opposition, which their brain will really not want them to focus on, is to push every desire that they have down and every time that rises up to go serve somebody else. Do every single thing that your brain doesn't want to do. You will break yourself of that in about two weeks and your life will look entirely different. That self-centered perspective of what do I get out of this or that's not fair to me, you're always going to be losing in that aspect of your life and breaking that selfish reflex off of you will change everything. Yeah, there's so much irony in the work of Sadhguru. He says that America will never be the happiest country on the planet because they are in the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And the supposition of the word pursue is to first reveal that it's absent. Yeah, that you don't have it. Yeah, right. <laughs> the irony. Uh, so you're you're using the word break. I'd love to know um, the essence of the break method. Where did it come from? How did you pioneer it? And, and how are you using it in the world? So break method is a data analytics approach to solving the mental health crisis. In more traditional therapy containers, everyone could easily conjure up the image of kind of the old white man with the beard, smoking a pipe, observing somebody talk through their experiences and their stories and interpret how they're answering questions. This is a very subjective way of experiencing somebody and then trying to put what you've just experienced into a label and then into a box. So in the traditional mental health paradigm, there's these boxes that your observations can then place people into. At Break Method, we believe this is an inherently flawed process because that person who's observing has their own filters and their own issues that are actually impacting the way they're receiving the information. So there are two problems with this exchange. Number one, in many of these cases, the client is able to answer questions with their narrative response. So they're telling stories, they're talking about how they feel, they're sharing their subjective opinion of data rather than data. So then we have another problem, which is the person observing has their own filters, their own issues that are influencing the way they're even receiving the story. So we're now imagine two steps away from data. Now it's it's how somebody feels about the data and then how somebody feels about the way somebody feels about the data. Follow? Yep. So that puts us in a very sticky situation because really, if we're 100% honest with ourselves, we now don't know if we actually place that person in the right box. And we also don't really know if we're being honest, does that box even exist? Okay. So that to me is the problem with traditional talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Now we'll kind of move over to our approach. We approach it from a data analytics perspective, which is input equals output, and your opinion of that process doesn't matter at all. In fact, your opinion or your experience of that passing of information actually will potentially block us from getting you results efficiently. If anyone's ever read uh, Nancy Drew books or Ed Hardy books, those were the only things that I actually enjoyed kind of in my like first, second, third grade when I was forced to read in the library, because I I mentioned I don't like reading. There's always in those sort of mystery novels or detective novels, what they call a red herring, right? There's always something that's meant to lead you slightly off the track. So it sounds plausible. And then your brain starts to track that red herring. And then you're able to kind of have the rest of the story catch you off guard. This also happens if we don't know how to build a structure to get around it. So there are naturally going to be red herrings if somebody's able to self-report. You're going to be led on kind of a wild goose chase. And then Maybe we're getting parts of the right information, but overall we're kind of going here and we're going there, we're going forward and we're going back. There's no rational structure to the data stream that's coming out. With break method, we focus on only raw data and raw data of output. So not our opinion. Whenever we're doing our initial brain pattern assessments, everyone that is trained in our methodology, we're trained to not allow our own opinion to influence anything. We just, even if we think something isn't a match to what the data has said, 
we the practitioner is allowed to write a note what they think it might turn into later but ultimately we have to go with what the data says in the beginning and because of that what we end up seeing are incredibly high success rates so 98% completion rate 93% organic referral rate because people are done and they're done for good within 4 months so it's not like i have to keep coming back to talk about my problem we actually get the problem solved we get it solved quickly and that person has fundamentally changed the pattern of who they are how they think how they label the world because it is this actually very specific input output formula that if we can figure out what it is we can then figure out all the ways that it's currently tricking or distorting you into seeing things a certain way behaving a certain way because many of us do all of the things that we know not to do so knowing not to do them is not very helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. Many of the people that come to us, they're like, if I knew how to stop using heroin, I would have stopped using heroin. And alas, here we are still using heroin. Yeah. So our job is to help them un pull up the hood and actually see what's happening under there to figure out how the brain is systematically weaponizing thinking and language against you to get you to keep repeating the things you know not to do. Because subconsciously, there's a part of your brain that is running a script that you consciously are not wanting it to run, and you don't know how to effectively counteract it. In break method, we rewire all the subconscious programming so that now your subconscious and conscious are functioning together, yeah. and they're they're actually tracking alongside each other rather than in conflict with each other. So we are just looking at the raw data and we assimilate the what the raw data says about the output of the pattern. The data dictates what box you go into and what box you go into. We work extensively for four months to try to disprove it and to break it. Only at the end, if we're 100% certain, that's where we input that rewiring behavior strategy and we see massive results that last. Mm, yeah, that's powerful. What are the uh, twofold question? um who are the types of people that benefit from this this method and then say there are people listening that think oh that sounds really interesting how might i get trained in that do you train people in in your method yes too? so we train therapists doctors chiropractors naturopaths anyone that is essentially in a medical or paramedical or healing modality you're eligible to apply for training our certification programs run twice a year it's a fairly extensive training modality. So you'll be in training with us for four to five months. And there are two live training dates. The first live training date is optional, although many people do choose to come live. And the graduation training is required. So no matter what, you know, we usually have people that are in all different countries. Our last training, we had people in Egypt and South Africa. They tuned in via YouTube for the initial, and then everyone's required to be there in person for graduation. So we do train therapists as a as a therapist or a paramedical staff member. You actually go through break before you learn how to be a practitioner of break. So mm -hmm. no one gets out of doing the work themselves, which I think yep. is very important. We need yep. to be able to understand who we are and the patterns with which we see the world and label people around us so that we can learn how to remove that. If we don't know what the distortion is, we can't remove it. I always talk to people and use the example of this being like a glasses prescription. Most of us just live our lives and we think I'm busy gold. This is the truth. But then we come to do break and we realize, oh, actually, no, I'm wearing glasses. I'm wearing glasses that I've been wearing my whole life. And actually, if I learn how to take these off now, I'm actually busy gold. That was busy gold seeing through a pattern. But fundamentally, I'm not actually that person. Many of those behaviors, many of the, the communication style, my personality expression mm -hmm. actually was pattern. And that's not actually who God made me to be. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, when we get to the end of break, many people do realize that everything that society has told them to radically own about their personality, like, do you radically own your personality? They've actually found that is all protective reflex. Those are all different create it's like created patterns that we've made to protect ourselves and shield ourselves from pain in the world but ultimately those aren't you at all when you remove all of those then we actually see who you were always meant to be shine through and that's usually in direct opposition to everything that you've built up in your life arguably this is why i went from being very masculine to now being able to be very feminine because now i don't i don't have to have those shields up all the time so funny, we do it? train just, we mm -hmm. so just just on that 
but some of those wounded warriors are the loudest people on social media preaching about so come get come get come get my thing. I I absolutely agree with you. I think in general, and I might you know might not be the most popular person for saying this, but I think the way our world operates right now is actually that type of leader is what the algorithm is prioritizing. And I think as sad as it is, many of the the true experts and the leaders that really could move the needle forward, they are not getting any traction at all. So I think on one hand, there's an algorithm component to it, which, you know, algorithm has to do with taste. And if the world is generally unhealed, their tastes are going to want only that which allows them to stay unhealed, right? Because they don't, the average person, they might think consciously that they want to heal, but they are still operating in preference. Yeah. So they'll actually avoid all of the things that could actually hold the keys to their healing naturally. Well, it's, so that's part of what yeah. drives the algorithm. Yeah, but it's do not conform to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed yeah, by the renewing, by the renewing of, your of your mind. Which is exactly what the break method is doing, isn't it? It's about rewiring your brain, renewing your It mind. really is. And understanding the ways the world has subtly and overtly patterned you. Because a lot of us, we're aware of some of the very overt things, but we're missing the treasure trove of these really passive, subtle things that really fundamentally made us who we are. So we're, you know, focused on the day that daddy left or the time I got raped or the time that, you know, my parents got divorced when the reality is none of those have any bearing on your foundational brain pattern at all. What's more likely to be a culprit is how patient your mom was, how how your parents handled their arguments. Did they hide them and you'd hear little bits and pieces of the fight? And then when you'd ask them, like, is everything OK? They're like, oh, yeah, honey, everything's great. <laughs> Doing that repeatedly actually will create a trust issue because they're like, I'm not an idiot. I heard you yelling. You're telling me everything's fine. And if that happens with repetition, even if eventually that ended in a divorce, the child's brain is patterned by that input, not the divorce itself. Our brain isn't patterned with one-off events. It's patterned with reversely or adversely perceived repetitive events, not one-offs. Yeah. I think Jesus said um, something about uh, where your heart is, there your treasure will be, or something like that. And mm -hmm. I guess, how much do you account for the role of the heart within the the renewing of minds? You know, do you, do you see that maybe people connecting with their hearts has an interaction? Because I think here, here's my perspective, right? When I connect with the power of my heart, the by by the byproduct of that is that I feel a sense of oneness, a sense of gratitude, a sense of wholeness that I lack nothing, that all is okay. And I think sometimes that then creates the environment for my both my mind and my body to find uh, homeostasis. I can't remember what it is. Harmony, synergy between the two. Mm -hmm. What's kind of your perspective around the heart-mind-body interaction? So here's a really interesting tidbit. The heart is referred to in the Bible extensively, and it's referred to as the thinking organ, okay? So here's what's really interesting is that the heart biblically is actually our computing power. It's like the, the home of our emotional state. So it is more like our consciousness than it is either brain or heart the way we know it. So I think it's very important if we look at Hopefully people here that are listening are familiar with like the Taurus and the Tauric field, right? So any sort of um, self-generating energetic system is going to be built off of the building block of a Taurus. And if we look at our bodies as a Tauric field, our zero point is going to be that heart in the center. The heart is what keeps the whole system functioning. So energetically, the heart is going to be the primary, it's like the prime target for anything negative in the world because that can get that heart battery to kind of shut down. But it's also a great way for us to connect with other spiritual forces that are kind of raising up that vibration, so to speak, or to allow us to experience more of the, the different frequencies that are more attuned to love. It's going to ultimately change the way we function as a physical and as a spiritual being the heart. So when we look at it from the energetic perspective, it functions as that zero point or the battery. And then when we look at it from the biblical perspective, that really is our it's it says, you know, above and beyond all things, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Mm -hmm. 
which is essentially that our consciousness and our understanding of the world and how we perceive reality is very susceptible to intrusive thoughts. It's susceptible to negativity, right? So that kind of goes back to this idea that this is that zero point. It's the prime target. If you look at kind of the world as a battle between light and darkness or good versus evil or what have you, that is the target for getting you either pulled into like low vibration or high vibration. Mm -hmm. So when we focus on renewing the mind, I really do believe that it is actually biblically talking about the heart. The heart is is the territory that is ultimately under attack all the time by dark forces. You know, our our brain is something that is functionally connected to that heart or to the consciousness, but the the heart is where everything gets generated. It's like, it is that generator. It's the generator of both our energy, but it's also the generator of our thoughts, our feelings, how we're labeling the world. So, you know, I think the heart is a huge focus on, it's a huge focus in break method, but I think we look at it less from like some of the pure love focus and also look at the role the heart plays in just the generation of all emotions. And I think that's maybe the point of contrast because biblically the heart is the generator of all emotions, right? Mm. Anger, sadness, it's just, it's not just the love part. It's just, it's that the fullness of our battery and how we express period full stop. So many people in the work that I do that have never experienced anger and tend toward anxiety and sadness in general, as we start to have them heal, what are they going to experience more of? Probably anger, right? And then the people that are very angry and maybe have more of like an analytical mind, they might actually find themselves moved to tears and start to experience sadness for the first time. So this kind of goes back to this idea of like, the heart just is the generator of all emotions. And I think there's some missteps around that concept in some of the more new agey communities that really only associated with like love and high vibration you know um where any person that is really going through that healing process they're probably going to spit out on the other side experiencing some of the opposite so i think it can also be heart-centered for somebody that's been a people pleaser their whole life to express anger for the first time i agree with you it's the synthesis of polarity or or it's Mm -hmm. the it's the yeah 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 i agree with you look i could talk to you all afternoon i I could probably talk to you longer than i could talk to joe rogan i I think there are many more hours of conversation i'd love to have with you but i want to be super respectful of your time um i have a word here always better than yesterday it's called heart print and the word um really symbolizes like the ripple effect the the legacy of our interactions with human beings sometimes that can be an, an, an energetic quantum kind of trace Sometimes it might just be the possibilities we create for other people. I'd just love for you to just take a moment and um, just really start to consider what you think your heart print might be. Is it like a phrase, like a statement or a phrase? Is that what usually comes out of it? I guess what I'm asking is what do you think the legacy of all your work and the break method will be? The legacy of my work is to break the chains of generational patterns of behavior. I think many people will come to break method to work on their own issues, but fundamentally, the work is to actually heal themselves so that they don't create the patterns of disruption for their future generations. So we're as a company, our focus is on restoring generational lines because so much of what we carry with us is from years prior to us of emotional trauma and different types of behavioral responses that even if we try to oppose it, we're often maybe going too far to the other side, like we talked about, where we're going from you know being raised in a very authoritarian, strict household to anything goes, we'll just be completely free flow and go with the flow. There's a very specific way that I believe humanity needs to heal to come back to that, those midpoints of true healing rather than these kind of wild oscillations on other sides. Mm -hmm. And that is what break method is focused on doing is healing both the individual, but for the good of that whole generational line. We want our people to be a ripple out in the world. And one of the things that we do focus on at the end of break is that Once you go out into the world, and I think it's why our organic referral rate is so high, Mm -hmm. we have a a deep conversation with them about, you know, 
you're learning now how to treat your husband or your wife with more respect or how to parent differently your children this also is now how you should be at Starbucks when you're ordering your drink, how you're talking to a checkout person at the grocery store. It's not like we're just teaching you how to do better with the people that are in your life, but also pay it forward to everybody that's out in the world, because then you actually become that generational ripple for other people. We get some people that come to us and they're like, yeah, I met so-and-so and they were just the nicest person I ever met. And they were going out of their way to be helpful. And I just asked them like, how do you do what you do? And they're like, break method, go check it out. So yeah, yeah, I think yeah. as a company, that's what we were focused on is helping people become a generational ripple for their own lives, but also just paying it forward to humanity to show them, you know, we don't, we don't have to be radically owning these terrible parts of ourselves and like doing shadow work and staying in our shadow. We actually can be healed. We can be free of these very impulsive emotional responses that ultimately just do harm to ourselves and the people around us. If I can just tell this one quick little, I think this really says it all. I was at I was speaking at a workshop at Omega Institute, which is like a very kind of like liberal hippie commune of, of academics that meet. And the whole weekend, it was so contrasted who was in my group versus who was there for other things. And it was just from visuals purely, if you're just observing people's behavior, our group stuck out like a sore thumb. And there, you know, there's like one place where you can go get coffee and food and things like that. And there's not, you're completely in the middle of nowhere. So like everyone's going there. And I started to notice when we were in line that this woman behind the counter was just looking really stressed out. And I got up there and I was like, hey, is there anything I can do for you? Do you need a second? And she was like, you know, you're like the 12th person that's asked me that. And she like starts pointing out, she's like, who are you guys? Because you're the only ones out of all of the staff that seems to care at all about my life. So it's thank just you busy so much. And her disciples. Right. It's just me and my disciples out here, like <laughs> caring about you. Like, I know I want a coffee, but I don't want a coffee more than I like want your life to get better. So like, yeah, yeah. do you need anything in this two minute time frame where everybody else is like, God, that took forever. I want my yeah. coffee. I want this. I want that. They don't care. Um, so I, I think to me, evidence that I'm doing what I've set out to do is that people are able to operate out in the world more empathetic, more understanding, and more dynamic. I think one of our biggest fails as human beings is that once our brain pattern is set, we keep doing things in a certain sequence and we don't really learn how to be dynamic and also specifically dynamic. Like me talking to you, you need something else from me than maybe my husband would need, or one of my employees needs me to be able to adapt my language a certain way to collaborate. People aren't all that good at collaboration because we don't know how to assess the other person and be dynamic for the good of the group. We just know how to do things one way. And we're like, well, why does that group like me? And that group hates me. Well, there's different people. So that's all the evidence that I would be looking for if my work is working, is if people are able to be dynamic and empathetic and mm -hmm. actually get out there and make a difference in the world rather than point out all the things that are broken. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, like one of our, our focal points is build the world you want to live in. Don't just complain about it. I don't want to have a generation of complainers. I'd rather have a generation of innovators that knows themselves and believes in themselves to find a solution to a bigger problem. So I like solutions oriented people. I love that. Thank you for all that you're doing in the world. Thank you for the heartprint that you're leaving. Um, I'll add all your links in the show notes. Where's the first place they should really head to, to see what uh, is going on? Breakmethod.com is a great place to go. We do offer a brain pattern assessment. So a brain pattern assessment is a one-time consultation you have certain videos that go with it. You have a couple workbook pages that you do. And ultimately that gives you an eight to 10 page PDF report of your entire eight part brain pattern. That's the best place to start. We can definitely give your um, listeners the code all caps heal my brain. So all caps heal my brain gives you 50% off. I think that's the, to me, whether you're looking at it to take it as a certification and be trained in the modality, or you're looking for it for yourself couples or family and kids, that's still the best place to start. It helps us understand how to best serve you by knowing what that initial brain pattern is. So break method. You can also follow me on Instagram at busy gold and also at break method. Although our break method Instagram is not, it's kind of eclipsed by my personal posting. So either breakmethod.com or my Instagram busy gold. 
Love that, Busy. Thank you for all that you're doing. I'd be honored if you'd leave us a final thought from your good self. Yeah, final thought would be don't just subscribe to the narrative. And I, I think that can be applied to anything in your life, whether that's, you know, the world at large in the mainstream narrative or whether that's whatever academic space or container you're finding yourself in. Do the work to understand who you are and how your brain is maybe overlooking errors in something. Because often I believe human beings are built to be lie detectors. Like we just have that fundamentally in ourselves. And we're often placed in these containers where someone's telling you, no, it's this way. And everything in your body's like, I don't think it's that way. But based on your brain pattern, you might toe the line. You might be a people pleaser. You might just be unwilling to kind of push those boundaries and ask a question. I think where we find ourselves in the world today as a collective requires all of us to dig a little bit deeper, move into a little bit more resistance and go into and through cognitive dissonance so that we can all come out on the other side. I believe that we are far more capable of anything like intellectual, spiritual processing, scientific information. We're far more capable than how we're currently experiencing life right now. So I think if we start to push back on some of those narratives and say, is this really true? Like, why do I believe this? Is it just because? Is it because somebody with a degree told me it was the truth? Why? Just ask more questions. Get back to that childlike curiosity. And you can do that kindly and respectfully, right? I'm not saying like go agitate the world, but be more willing to dig your feet in and ask some deeper questions because I believe the world is in desperate need of that right now. Mm, I've loved this conversation. I look forward to the next one. Take care, my friend. Okay, thank you so much. Hey, my friends, thank you for making it to the end. I hope that our time spent together today has left you a little bit better than before you push play. I'd really appreciate if you just took a moment to leave a review to allow me to meet more people where they are and hopefully leave them a little bit better too. If you're curious to know how I, through Always Better Than Yesterday, can serve you, your team, your organisation, then head to alwaysbetterthanyesterday.com to connect. And while you're there, let me know one or two things that you're going to do as a result of listening to this conversation. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts, your reflections, and the things that this spark in your own heart and mind. If you want more insights from my heart and mind, I do send out short episodes on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And again, I hope that they serve you well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Ryan Hartley, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, a podcast for heart-centered leaders just like you. Keep leading, my friends. Always love.